Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. You know what I'm offering? You have to let them decide for themselves. Money. Not just money. You remember. It's the chance to build cathedrals, entire cities, things that never existed, things that couldn't exist in the real world. So you, you want me to let someone else follow you into your fantasy? Today, as part of our throwback series, we're going to be discussing Inception, starring Leonardo DiCaprio, Ellen Page, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Tom Hardy, Marianne Cotillard, and Killian Murphy, directed by Christopher Nolan. Hello, and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. It's the podcaster who spends all this time at the minute in unconstructed dream space. It's Gally in Glasgow. Uh, there's a dreamer in my dreams. It's Devon in London. I'm lost in limbo and my brain's turned to scrambled egg. It's Matt in South Korea. And you mustn't be afraid to dream a little bigger, darling. It's Patrick from London. Ooh, Patrick actually did a quote from the film. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, actually, no, we did the quote last week for Taken that went on for a... Well, it was like a monologue, wasn't it? it was like the Shakespearean monologue. <laughs> That's my, my favourite quote. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And you did it in the Brian Mills voice, but that's great. And you, you sort of did Tom Hardy. Very good. Tried to. One of your former neighbours, is that right? Well, I, I mean, he there's murals in Richmond now, because he, he lives uh, not too far from here. Um, yeah, which are quite cool. He didn't steal your car, did he? Say again, Matt? He steals cars, apparently. I, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, on, on Jonathan Ross, he said that he, uh, well, at least he used to when he was uh, into the old, uh, I don't know what he was into, but he was stealing cars. When, when, when he was into the old appearing on The Big Breakfast. <laughs> Maybe around <laughs> circa the Denise Van Outen flirting, yeah. Circa I've only I've only ever had one uh, encounter with Tom Hardy. Um, if Aidan Dungate's listening, then he has a better story about his Simon Bronson when he looked up and he, he had Tom Hardy's penis in his face. <laughs> But um, <laughs> when, when I was working on Edge of Tomorrow, I was looking after Charlotte Riley, his partner, and she she was in a rehearsal. She gave me my phone and said, "I'm expecting a call. If you, if you wouldn't mind answering it, just take a message for me." I was like, "Yeah, sure, sure." And then it started ringing, and to my horror, there's a picture of Tom and the word Tom ringing. I was like, "Oh, fucking hell!" And <laughs> so, to the phone, like. Um, hello, Tom. Yeah, Charlotte's just in her house. Um, it's Patrick here. Just to send a message. He just went, guys, ring me back. <laughs> <laughs> he hung up so quick. Yeah, zero time for the help. Well, that's unfortunate, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But today, my choice, Inception from 2010, pushing the boundaries of, uh, of our remit. I know I saw it in uh in 2010 at a cinema i was on a date and it had a profound effect on me uh not the date uh the film and uh and regardless of what i think of the film now i think it does remain in my top five cinematic experiences uh, along with jurassic park matt your favorite titanic and uh and a random one uh twister which uh i saw about yeah. five times in the cinema and i just couldn't get enough of that flying cow still packed in <laughs> chasing weather uh, so yeah i uh, i devoured all things sigmund freud after after i saw the film sought out 
uh, everything I could find out about the meaning of dreams, the subconscious, etc. You mean Sigmund Freud? That's a Bill and Ted reference. <laughs> Hadn't watched it again since the last few months when I uh, introduced it to my fiance. She'd never seen it. She loved it the first time. Then we watched it a second time for the review for this. And, uh, and I was less enamored. And I think so was she. So we might explore why that why that might be, but I'll uh, I'll ask uh, I'll ask you guys. I mean, when did you see Inception? If you have indeed seen it, I actually I think I went to see it two or three times at the cinema as well. Um, having been quite a fan of Nolan and the Batman films beforehand, I'll I'll keep my cards close to my chest from now on. My opinion of it now. Um, when did you first watch it, Matt? I'm not sure when I first saw it. I didn't see it at the cinema, but I've been a, a big advocate of Nolan's and I've loved his work since Memento. Uh, even though that's a film I've only seen twice through, but I used to watch certain parts of it over and over in the early days of DVD and my early days of aspirational, uh, filmmaking. And I had that big green gorilla filmmaker's handbook. Did anyone have that? Oh, I, I remember people being into that. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, I remember reading a Nolan interview in there, like more than once, much more than the other directors that featured in it. It was all about his debut uh, following that he made quite cheaply and quite inventively. And since then, I've followed his career quite closely and I've seen pretty much everything he's done, like even his short film Doodlebug that's on YouTube. You can check that one out. It's kind of silly and you wouldn't really expect it of of Nolan. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm quite a big fan and I worship the Dark Knight trilogy. I really think it's fantastic. And the second and third in particular, actually. Um, but I love seeing a British director kind of schooling the Americans at their own game. He feels so smart. And I think we're quite fortunate to, to have him at the moment. Um, if you'd asked me like before this podcast, what my top five Nolans were, I don't think um inception would be in it but i'll i'll keep my sandwiches too as far as whether it managed to sneak in there but um i i would say that on uh, there was a block with the film on first viewing it um there was a disconnect between me and the film it was almost the exact opposite to what you've said galley and i was hoping that some of you could help me unpack why inception doesn't really click initially uh, it's it's the first film we've done that I don't really have a hardline view on. I saw this at the cinema as well, and I, I really liked it. Um, probably similar to you, Gally. I was I, I wouldn't put it up as a a, a life changing moment. I just remember really liking it, and I think we spoke about it, and I was mm. I was quite positive about it. And I remember um, uh, maybe I uh, this probably would have been just after I moved down to to London, 2010. I guess it would have been. Yeah, not long after I've moved down, and uh, a, f- a friend of mine from from back home, uh, Ron. I, I hope I'm going to misquote him because it's been ten years, but I do remember. I think maybe I posted on the Facebook and said that I'd seen it and that I quite liked it, and uh, he just responded with something like "miserable, self-indulgent, sub-bond wank." Oof, ouch. Which uh, I was there. Okay, <laughs> and I remember I kind of. Uh, I, I kind of defended it. I was like, "Yeah, man, that was really good." But um, uh, I hadn't seen it since and, until we watched it for uh, for the podcast like, last week. So, um, yeah, interesting to see whether our opinions have changed over the over the ensuing decade. Well, I think um, I think 
where we should start before we get into the plot and about the actual film is maybe we'll um, we'll scratch that itch that Matt's got with Nolan and and talk about him because he is a British filmmaker um, and as a as a Brit I'm very proud to have someone who is at the echelon of the the industry to the point where he's a new he's got a new film coming out uh, in July or it's supposedly going to be released in theaters in July and it has been it has been ordained as the film that is going to save theaters as in this is the film that is going to bring people back into the theaters amid covid-19 which seems like a hell of a lot of pressure Have you guys seen the trailer for it i mean it does look very uh, inception yeah well mm. if you well i've seen the trailer it doesn't really give too much away other than like uh, matt said he's still uh, fascinated by the preoccupations of time reality and how it can be manipulated so it does feel like a a kind of inception like film it's very different to something like dunkirk which you know i will talk about because i do think there are parallels between inception and dunkirk certainly in the in the structure narrative structure that he um he employs but yeah what, i mean what do we think of nolan i know you've some of you have sort of mentioned about what you think but matt you compared him to kubrick i guess that, is that because of the the sort of the sterile nature that people tend to not react to his films in an emotional engagement. It's more of an intellectual engagement or that he proposes that these films are not passive watches. You need to really engage with his stories because he's not going to, you know, he's not going to handrail you through it. Although I'd argue in Inception that there is a lot of handrails, but, but what do we think? I think the, the clinical um, kind of articulation of whatever he's doing is, is, kind of Kubrickian uh, and I, I do think there's an intellect behind it and I do think there's a mischievous playfulness in Inception that that's reminiscent of something like The Shining with the mazes and the the open ending and uh, there's even a scene in the in a bathroom in Inception that kind of echoes visually the uh, the Grady Jack stuff in The Shining, but I, I don't know if it's if it's overt or visual. It's just a feeling that I have. But like back to Tenet for a second. I, I saw the Tenet trailer, and I think it reveals my feelings about Inception too. It's kind of the the, no, the Nolan stable of actors that I'm a, a little, I'm growing a little tiresome of. Uh, I, I and I do think the overkill of certain themes uh, might be happening. Um, but there's this sleek kind of practical action with an underpinning intelligence. And, and that's that sounds great on paper, but for some reason it's wearing a little thin. I did like Dunkirk, um, but I'm not exactly freaking out over Tenet. It, it does appear that in Tenet, he's taken what he did in Inception and maybe just cranking it up a little bit further because it looks super like, like you say you could take it from a magazine and slap it on with all these amazing mm. cars everyone looks incredible the suits are all pristine and amazing and normally you know i think yes a uh, devlin's mate referred to it as sort of like a bond ripoff piece of piece of tosh normally you would you would say well that's great you know we love the bond films certainly the daniel craig ones not all of them but casino royale for that very reason the, the gloss the shine you know the the exuberance, but there is an emotional connection that seems to be lacking with a lot of people when they watch a Nolan film. Which uh, uh, Dunkirk got me, and Inception got me the first time I saw it. But the second time, like I said, I was less enamoured. I'm, I'm, I think uh, I'm a little bit disagreeing in all of you, in a, in a way. So this is going to be an interesting conversation because 
firstly, I've not seen the trailer to Tenet, or I, I, I'm definitely become somebody who likes to avoid trailers of films that I want to see because I've fallen, I, I have a distrust of trailers nowadays. I think they give away too much. And I, I don't want my films ruined that way. So I, I can't comment on the stylistic uh, nature of Tenant. But my first thought and my reaction to what you're saying is I don't see the problem with having um, uh, almost an auteurd, <laughs> giggle, turd, uh, <laughs> visual, <laughs> the, the visual style and, and um, signature because... You know, then if no one wants to do that, that's fine. I think we might get into that in this film because I do think that uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is dressed as Christopher Nolan in this film. It's one of my notes. Oh god, yeah. But yeah. um, <laughs> I I I like Nolan a lot. I've always been quite a fan of his. I haven't seen uh, Insomnia or that Doodlebug, but um, I remember watching Memento for the first time and just being really wowed by the storytelling and the the there's something um you know what feels like a big film and done in such a different way in a plot uh driven film i see inception as a plot driven film and i I actually had the emotional response not the first time i saw this film but um on repeat viewings i started to understand um the emotional draw to the film not only from uh cobb and mal but from Fisher and his father as well, which I, mm. I really drew to um, when I watched it the other day, uh, and I felt myself welling up a bit. So I, I really liked uh, Memento. That was definitely the one I saw first. I would have seen that back when we were, I would imagine, students or probably before student era. Um, and yeah, I always really liked that. Um, much like like you, Matt. Though I don't think I've seen it in a while. I think I've got it kind of locked in well enough that um, uh, I have not felt mm. any great need to watch it again but you know um it's it stands out as being a a very good very well executed very smart film and i do feel like that was the one that i uh uh, have responded to the most as well because you know the 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 story of the character is you're really with that character it's it's very um uh first person and and stuff so uh that i that i liked i i was never a I wasn't originally a big fan of uh, Batman Begins just because uh, I guess I like my Batman a little more um, stylized and silly. Like, I think there's something mm-hmm. to be said for, like, an inherent bit of, like, silliness or camp when it comes to a lot of comic book stuff. I don't think Some it's days essential. you just can't get rid of a bomb. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, you, I mean, you all fucking love Adam West Batman but um, there's room for multiple interpretations of these <laughs> things and and I do appreciate that he was trying to do something different I think that it worked much better in the uh, in the second film obviously The Dark Knight was where he kind of I think uh, uh, nailed it a little more and The Dark Knight Rises is Dark Knight Rises is a strange one because it is it's it has all the veneer of the kind of gritty, realistic texture of the Dark Knight, but it is underneath the hood very silly, like very very silly. The plotting in it is ridiculous, and uh, the the leaps in logic needed to, to to get from one place to another are absurd. But I but I quite like that about it. It also makes for a really strange clash with when you've got that kind of gritty, you know texture on the top of it and then you scratch away and you just think that it's absurd um 
This one I really liked. I, I, I had the same thing with Interstellar. I didn't particularly dig it. Like I went to the cinema to see it. I just found it, I just found it a bit, um, bombastic. Uh, I didn't particularly think there was much going on. I think he had a lot of ideas about space time and, and stuff that he wanted to explore. And, um, maybe, maybe he should have just gone with that instinct and made something quite dry and an intellectual and I, I doubt you'd get it through the through the studio system although as as we point out he's one of the very few filmmakers in this day and age who can pretty much do what he wants with a lot of money and he's definitely a he's definitely a transformational filmmaker i mean every if you think about the generations you have like the 70s and 80s which is okay maybe maybe not the 70s but certainly the 80s dominated by spielberg in the 90s we had the the sort of the rise of Tarantino and it's now Nolan's time isn't it like the last 20 years look at where cinema has moved and a lot of it especially yeah, and the... Cameron in the 90s as well I was, yeah mm-hmm. Cam- absolutely Cameron in cinema thing, which which is, is also that blockbuster thing but but you think about where uh, the industry's moved and with the with the rise of comic book films and certainly one particular staple of comic book films the gritty reboot <laughs> the gritty reboot which uh, every you know they, they looked at Batman trilogy, certainly begins in Dark Knight and went, right, that's how we do it. Take everything super serious, realistic. Everything needs to be in world explained. There can't be any nonsense. And, you know, we'll never see Jack Nicholson pull out a gun from his trousers and shoot at a plane. That's not going to happen again. So that is, well, that's what they <laughs> did. And obviously all based around one guy's vision interpretation of one particular character and the world that he created mm, and then was m- massively misapplied across the uh, across the board as uh, evidenced by the fact that when me and you galley went to uh, ma- we made that terrible decision to go watch the fan four stick movie oh yeah oh god <laughs> I feel I feel bad for our you know past selves that we saw that but i tell you what we had a good three-hour run afterwards yeah, yeah. We were super, super pissed up on the <laughs> on the on the thames <laughs> Guys, would you like the plot summary? Yes. <laughs> Dom Cobb is a skilled thief, the absolute best in the dangerous art of extraction, stealing valuable secrets from deep within the subconscious during the dream state, when the mind is at its most vulnerable. Cobb's rare ability has made him a coveted player in the treacherous new world of corporate espionage. But it has also made him an international fugitive and cost him everything he has ever loved. Now Cobb is being offered a chance at redemption. One last job could give him his life back, but only if he can accomplish the impossible. Inception. Instead of the perfect heist, Cobb and his team of specialists must pull off the reverse. Their task is not to steal an idea, but to plant one. If they succeed, it could be the perfect crime. But no amount of careful planning or expertise can prepare the team for the dangerous enemy that seems to predict their every move. An enemy that only Cobb could have seen coming. Ooh, intrigue, isn't it? <laughs> Zero points for not writing it yourself. But, but, but. I know, sorry about that. Sorry about that. I'll, uh, I'll get back into the box and never never do a plot summary again. Does <laughs> that feel like an accurate summation of what we watched? Well, it's a press release, isn't it? So they don't want to give away any kind of anything too spoilery. We were talking about trailers as well, where... You have- Sometimes we feel like trailers give us too much these days, which I, I would agree they definitely do. But one thing they can do is mm. they can help 
frame people's kind of mindsets going into a film to sort of prime them to expect a certain type of thing because it's two hours and 40 something minutes there's a lot going on and the the you know the human brain can only respond to so much stimulus at once so i think um stuff like that can kind of try and guide you towards which bits of the plot they want you to pay attention to more than others and i i guess um that's uh it's an interesting one when they say like that you know that the enemy the only cob can uh can can uh, understand um which I assume they're talking about his subconscious projection of Mal. Isn't it weird that we don't see the actual enemy, which is Cobol Engineering? In this? That's exactly what I was thinking. There's some strange stakes in in retrospect going on in the film, and um, and those stakes keep shifting as well, Devlin, throughout the film. Yeah, and they get they get established and then quickly removed. One of the stakes is the militarized subconscious, when mm. they which they make a big deal about, um, a sort of about two-thirds in the of the film in when they're like wait a minute his subconscious has been militarized <laughs> can i just ask whose whose subconscious is it that's been militarized are they saying that it's fishers but i quite like that idea that this this military industrial complex thing like the, the, nolan does it a lot in the dark knight trilogy with the like, if you look at the batmobile that the batmobile represents every director's vision of of Batman, right? If you look, you look at the Joel Schumacher one, that's Joel Schumacher. You look at, um, uh, Tim Burton. Yeah. That's Tim Burton's Batmobile. And, and Nolan is the only one who, who doesn't look like it was designed by a 10 year old with a crayon. And it actually, you know, fits into, um, the, the reality of, of what it would be if a billionaire got his hands on, on, uh, you know, developing these things. I, I'd agree with, um, what you said, Chris, but I, I'm kind of like the, the, on the flip side of it, I like my Bond to be really stupid, and I like my Batman to be really dark. So it's kind of uh, like yeah, the opposite, so- the opposite way around. But yeah, as far as that militaristic idea, like the, the way to put those high concept ideas on film in a realistic way, I think it's quite cool what he does with the with the military. What stakes changed like- when they're in the Yusuf's dream and it's raining, and they do the it's militarized. We weren't prepared for this. Oh, they, yeah. uh, Arthur says, you know, we, we need to turn back. And, and I think even um, Cobb says, we'll be killed within a week. We need to proceed on with the mission. Let me ask you a question. Why the hell were we ambushed, huh? Those were not normal projections. They've been trained for God's sake. You're right. How could they be trained? Fishers had an extractor teach his subconscious to defend itself. So his subconscious is militarized. It should have shown in the research. I'm sorry. So why the hell didn't it? Don't tell me to calm down. This was your job, goddammit. This was your responsibility. You were meant to check Fisher's background thoroughly. We are not prepared for this type of violence. We have dealt with sub-security before. We'll be a little more careful and we're going to be fine. This was not a part of the plan. He's dying for God's sake. Then in the second level, Arthur's being chased by the same militarized subconscious. And then by the third level, there are a bunch of disposable things that that yeah. Tom Hardy can destroy by just skiing around. And it all feels like, well, wait a minute, if it was supposed to be this big subconscious militarized force, <laughs> why are they actually easier to get rid of the lower they go down? That was all. It was just more like well, they create because this the, Because the architect makes the levels more difficult the, the further down they go. The third level is designed as a labyrinth. No, absolutely. But Tom Hardy seeks them out and kills them pretty comfortably. But whereas when they're in the, when they're first blindsided, they're like, fuck, we're, we're in trouble here. We need to just stop. That's, that's because the first level is specifically into Fish's, so like, 
does it not weaken the further down it goes? No, no, I, no, I think that's you just kind of justifying it. I, 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 to me, it just felt like a bit of a waste really is that this subconscious. It may be me justifying it, but also when I think about it, it, Fisher won't have been taught how to deal within a dream, within a dream, within a dream. He might have only just been taught to deal with one. So that would lessen it as it goes further down. But maybe I am trying to. Um, no, no, it, it, it's just more like it's just speaking to what Davlin was saying about stakes, and they do shift. You know, I think at one point as well, um, Tom Hardy just sort of says, "Oh, well, that's a shame. Mission's over then. Uh, we almost had it." And then that's when Leo sort of says, "Ah, but if we die, we go into we go into mental space," and, yeah. and it kind of feels like, "Oh, wait, you can't say that now. Like we're about two hours into the film." <laughs> Perhaps we just needed some baddies, like some physical baddies. Uh, mm. you know, intellectually, he's really, Cobb is really the, his own villain in many ways of, of the piece. And, and they need a physical, in, in order for it to, to play like a bond or something like that, that you need to have some physical, um, presence from bad guys. The film is very plot driven within that in mind because he knows, Cobb knows this is the ultimate, uh, thing. He knows that if he wakes up and he fails, he goes to prison for the rest of his life. And that's driving him the whole time. I guess, I guess what I'm getting at is the first hour, we can all agree, is a sort of data dump of exposition about setting up the rules within the dreams, which is great. Cause let me talk about the opening scene. We kind of get thrust into the film. It's a bit of a Nolanism, isn't it? Like we'll start at the end and mm-hmm. come back and meet it. He does it in the prestige. Mm-hmm. He does it in Memento starts at the end. Yeah, I think I can't remember. Yeah, so it's, 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 it's his whole manipulation of time and it's a way for him to kind of construct a narrative and, and play around with it. And I remember reading, I remember watching a documentary with Quentin Tarantino talking about different filmmakers. And he said that you can have an audience for about half an hour if they feel like they're in safe hands. And I do feel like that when Nolan manipulates right. time and story, that I do feel like I'm in safe hands because I know that whatever I'm being shown will will come into play at some point later on. And, yeah. and obviously, Leo being caught looking like he's he's had a bloody two week bender with the pussy posse, um, kind of being <laughs> thrown into the. Um, <laughs> thrown into the japanese castle which by the way if i don't mention it now i will um i'll I'll not mention it throughout the episode but the production design for the for the um saido castle is awesome like i don't know i just want my i want my house to look like that it looks great like the the blending of old and new (laughs) japanese um architecture stuff is amazing they even bring attention to it don't they with the francis bacon painting and so the subject has a penchant for British post-war artists, which is really cool. It's all detail. I do like that they're bringing attention. Even that their narrative, that, that plot device there, they're saying that they've created this and we understand that this is all creation and we've been dreaming that they can design it, which I think is very subtle and good ways of, of explaining the rules and how it kind of works in this film. Was it clear to you guys, I know that we've seen it now multiple times, but I think one of the reasons why I really got attracted to it in my first watch is one i was just in awe and two i was was being intellectually stimulated because i was constantly trying to like follow it and and i was hanging on every word and i found that the opening half an hour really did kind of set everything up quite cleanly but i don't know what you guys thought Mm, i thought the same well i I remember specifically wondering what on earth mal was how she got Mm. there and wondered if it was an infiltration a manifestation of a subconscious guilt was would be yeah yes mm. but that was a really cool thing to start with I, I i was amazed by the starting of this film to 
a you know it's a film that's established that this is a technology that exists you know not the origins of the technology b mm. we, we he already goes straight into two levels of dreams rather than just the one and really ramping up the kind of the, the ideology and the the um the scope for it because that's a really complicated way to begin a film but you know, like you said, Gally, your hand rails it, has the faith of the audience to keep up and, and just go with it because it's kind of, you get action and suspense and straight away. But the mole infiltration thing was really interesting to, to start it. And I was wondering, uh, you know, I don't know whether it's any of your notes, but a lot of people have spoken about the names and the meaning of names in this film and mole being, uh, an actual, literal translation to bad or, or being bad mm. um, yeah. is a really interesting opener for her character as well. Can I uh, point out one thing that, uh, you know, on the Amazon prime, when you watch these things and they have the, um, the little uh, trivia sometimes pops up. Mm. I saw one, which actually made me a bit annoyed, which was that um, <laughs> it's the first bit of trivia that comes up. It's across the, um, the, the logos when they're playing the Warner Brothers logo, and it says, uh, if you line up the first initial of every character in the film, it spells out the word dreams, and for some reason that really pissed me off. Oh, didn't know that. <laughs> like, that just feels like some pretty Bush League shit. <laughs> <laughs> I thought they had deeper meaning than that, though, because isn't Ariadne some Ariadne's mythology from, uh, Greek character yeah. that... Helps people get through a labyrinth. Which yes, is quite, she is. Yeah. It's quite a clever name. But also, he's called Eames too. So Eames, it's not really a stretch from that to to dreams, is it? Well, uh, Eames is named Tom after Hardy's a famous ar- architect from the past. So ah, yes, mm-hmm. but do you think that's because of the the sound of his name, or do you think it's because of the the architect himself? Oh God, I didn't think about that. Interesting. I don't know his work at all. I don't know who that Matt, is. Matt, I do have a connection. <laughs> uh, so Eames, played by mm. Tom Hardy. Ariadne, yeah, named after someone helping out in a labyrinth. Tom Hardy, this is six degrees right. of Kevin Bacon shit here that I'm about to drop. Tom mm-hmm. Hardy, yeah. main actor in Minotaur. <laughs> you just want to talk about Minotaur, don't you? This will annoy you even more, Chris, but the, the one I saw was Dreams Pay. If you take oh, the initial yes. of each, right. each actor, yeah. it's yeah. Dreams Pay. This is a thing that, that kind of jerks my chain about this film and i it's fine if if it's people's thing like i i'm totally cool with however anyone wants to engage with any film but for just me i've always been a bit annoyed when somebody wants to try and sit me down and explain what a film is especially in some sort of like very long blog post it's why i resisted watching uh um David Lynch movies for so long because there was always just some jerk off trying to tell me what he actually meant. <laughs> and so the fuck do you know? I don't know. And then when I yeah. when I later found out that David Lynch's whole thing is basically just like a kind of weird, lucid dreaming filmmaking where it's yeah, like he doesn't know. So how yeah, do you know? He does it because he wanted to and it was cool or maybe weird. I don't know. See, like that, I, I appreciate much more than like, well, actually, this character represents the subconscious. <laughs> if it's not in the film, well, then I don't need to know it, you know? What's uh, what's your take on the it's a film about making films theory? So hear me out. I'll just uh, uh, I'll lay it out for those yeah. that do not know about the Inception film theory. Um, actually, 
what the story is about, and I'm going to do it in this voice because it's, it's important. <laughs> if you can maintain that voice, I'd be very I, 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 I can't. I can't. Um, and one, my neighbours all wonder what's going on. Um, but, <laughs> so um, what what it is was uh, a guy called Devin Faraci uh, of Birth Movies Death, uh, when it kind of came out, had sort of penned this idea that's kind of grown arms and legs where it was uh, Nolan's cathartic way of dispelling the creative process of making films and how it impacted on his own life. So Cobb being a, an avatar for him, which we've already identified. And Patrick, you've not seen the trailer for Tenet, but Robert Patterson is dressed like Christopher Nolan again, even with the scarf. Um, okay. So it's he, he's the avatar this time. But it's um, it's a, it's a the story of a creator in his own dreams, desperately trying to get back to his reality. Hashtag kids. And, uh, and Ariadne, Ariadne is... Um, is the writer because she designs the worlds, uh, building it from a blueprint and a maze. And uh, Arthur is the producer, somewhat imaginative, uh, uh, you know, got a little bit of stifling with his imagination, but is a this is how we get things done. Cobb is the director. Point man. Eames mm. is the actor because he can imitate, and it goes on and goes on and goes on. Yeah, I suppose Saito is the financier then as well. He's yeah, the exec producer. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so what's Mal? The antagonist? The muse. Yes, she is. She's the muse. She's the inspiration that turns on you. So, um, I remember when, when the, I saw this at the cinema, I think uh, either I read this article or I kind of thought of something, I, I assume I must have read this article, and I and I nodded my head a lot, and, and said, yeah, yeah, that's deep, I get it, and I think that was actually, that was my rebuttal to my friend Ron, who called it Subbond Wank, I remember saying, like, oh no, but actually it's about filmmaking, Ron, it's about filmmaking, because of course, you know, we went to film school, and filmmaking is important to us, and then I think watching it back, I remember looking at it, and thinking, there is literally nothing within the text of this film that supports that whatsoever. For me, just personal, but I didn't see it because no, surely a metaphor actually tells you something about or, or illuminates some deeper meaning as to what it's trying to be a metaphor for, but it doesn't say anything about filmmaking. Like Charlie Kaufman is a guy who's made a little cottage industry about, you know, using a very elaborate multi-stage metaphors for talking about the way that humans interact with art and, and especially about how, how you can create art and how difficult it is. And specifically in adaptation, how difficult it is to create art in cinema. Um, and there's, there's ideas, you know, left, right, and center that, that are expounded on in there. And, and he's kind of, he's critical of it. And he's also uh, praises the idea of art, artistic creation and stuff. And, and yeah, this is, I, to me, it's 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 not that. So, I wondered if you were going to discuss Synecdoche, New York, in this talk, Dublin. Um, well, I do. I, I mean, I do very much love Synecdoche, New York. Um, uh, yeah, I should probably hold back some of my ideas of Synecdoche, <laughs> New York, and uh, <laughs> it feels like it's an unfair comparison. Really, mm. um, they're going for very different headspaces. I think. Um, I think certainly. Like I said, I was using a slightly condescending tone when I was mentioning the theory, and it's not to poo-poo it. It's a it's a perfectly kind of valid interpretation. If well, apparently, want... me from ten years ago was well into it. Yeah, but I, I, what I will say is, I, me and me and my fiance watched The Prestige last night, and you could you could project that onto The Prestige as well, like the idea of one person being the showman, one person being the uh, creative obsession, and your dedication to your craft, and you could. 
I could make a whole blog about how that is really about filmmaking. It, all films, especially films that are dealing with dreams, because there's obviously a, a very, very causal link between you make a film about something that you have imagined or a story that is fictional and you put it onto, onto film. And he, and Nolan uses it in this quite some some scenes i think really work with it where for example you know when uh leo introduces um ariadne to the dream the dream world and they have the scene where they're sat down in the cafe and he says ariadne how did we get here and he's like oh well you you never remember how you kind of got to uh got to a place in a dream very similar to a film when they just cut from I need a pint, and then they're in the pub. Well, of course we don't want to see them actually travel to the pub. That would be awfully boring, unless they're having an amazing conversation. Let me ask you a question. You never really remember the beginning of a dream, do you? You always wind up right in the middle of what's going on. I guess, yeah. So how did we end up here? Well, we just came from the... uh... Think about it, Ariadne. How did you get here? Where are you right now? Dreaming? You're actually in the middle of the workshop right now, sleeping. This is your first lesson in shared dreaming. Stay calm. God forbid you had a film that literally followed someone in their day to day. How terribly dull! I'm sure there have been films, mm. mainly made at film school, I'd imagine. But you know what I mean, where it's just someone just like eating his breakfast, doing whatever. Well, that, that's a, that's a Charlie Kaufman thing, isn't it? From adaptation. Where, it is. Where Nothing happens in life. <laughs> Are you mad? <laughs> yeah, it's like cinema is uh, is uh, is kind of just like untruthful or something because it doesn't show the bits that are boring and shit. Honestly, that that does actually make sense. The idea of you know that the dreams in cinema collapse time in the same way. I think that's the only reason it resonates between th- this one and Inception. That that theory of of you know casting or crewing a film and this one, it's it's the equating dreams to to what movies are and they're actually very very similar that's why it doesn't apply uh o- overtly to something like the prestige but it, you, you could probably make it fit but like john lennon says like ev- everything fits if you're tripping off on some trip <laughs> you know <laughs> somebody can make it work if yeah. you're twisted enough or but yeah I, I think that's that's the only reason because it equates to dreams so overtly uh, one one thing i wanted to talk about because we kind of avoided it is uh is leo as uh as Dom Cobb, because uh, we've not had a Leo film yet on the on the show. We will have another one soon when we do our Titanic explosive review, um, starring <laughs> Matt, uh, which will be interesting. Oof. But, but obviously, I'm this is warm up to of... it now. I'm ready. James Cameron, ask me about LBC. Go on. Well, let's get into it because um, I, I personally, personally, for me in this film, I think he's particularly strong. This is sort of uh, third phase DiCaprio, kind of. Growing out of squinty um, and old, yeah, get, yeah, getting, getting a little bit more serious. But he is one of those. He is, uh, no matter what you think of him as an actor, he's like one of the last remaining kind of Hollywood A-listers who could just start. You know, he literally could finance a film on his own title alone. He's very, very been very careful in his career. Mm-hmm. Sort of been super strategic. You know, he's worked with Spielberg, Scorsese, Ridley Scott. He picks mm-hmm. his projects quite well. Um, obviously, Critters Three was was a bit of a bit of a damp squib in his uh, his collection. But you know what I mean. He, he yeah, managed. We can't blame to, him for that one. We can't blame him for that. And also, Critters Three is great. But the um, yeah, he's he's just been someone that's managed to curate his career 
really well. And I loved him in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, Tarantino's latest film. I thought he was really strong in that. Well, I'm kind of constantly underwhelmed by him. Uh, do you remember Lee and Herring? They used to call him yes. the sprout-faced boy. They did. <laughs> and uh, I have this kind of issue with um, purely because he... He has this kind of wispy beard and he, and he looks, he's, he's about 50% Jack Nicholson in this one. He's probably about 75% Jack now. He's really heading there. That's, that looks where he's trying to go towards what Jack looked like, but he's, he, he still looks too young to me. He plays, he's playing roles that maybe, um, Harrison Ford would have played like to a, to a better standard or, you know, De Niro or Pacino or someone. I, I don't really know who would have done it in the eighties and nineties. But he kind of still has this baby face, and I, I often fail to see what the fuss is about with him. But I, I feel like you could plug somebody better into Inception. But the thing is, he's going to sell it. That name is going to sell it. So I get why Nolan does it, and I don't think he's untalented. I think he's he's pretty good a lot of the time. Like what's eating Gilbert Grape? I thought was really stunning, and uh, I agree with you, Gally. Once upon a time in Hollywood was maybe my favorite Leo role ever i think it managed to give him scenes that showcased his strengths like his dark humor uh, like a comedic frustration one of my problems with with him in inception is there's not really any humor and you could direct that at nolan really because the script doesn't really have anything particularly comedic um and maybe it shouldn't but uh, along with something like the wolf of wall street i think once upon a time in hollywood is is my favorite ldc role i loved him in uh, catch me if you can yeah, I was I was going to say, catch me if you can. He's yeah, very, that, that works. He's a proper movie star, charming performance. He can hold the center of a film, which is not something that a lot of actors can do. And and with a film like Inception, where it's all about these huge ideas and themes and visuals, especially, you really do need somebody who can just sort of anchor it, be a bit of a kind of, you know, a straight man. But then he gets your you get your tortured scene where you get to do a bit of a scream out of a window. Um, I thought he was quite good in it. I, I thought he was he was he was very functional in a film that has a lot of time for things that need function. Like it feels like the a lot of the the film in general is a lot of pushing things around a chessboard, which I guess was we were saying that that oftentimes people don't respond as emotionally as they do intellectually to his stuff, and this is very much a. I, I thought it was a film where this is this piece needs to go here in order for this to slot into here. And if you don't have actors who can bring a kind of immediate gravitas in and kind of generate some, uh, just enough kind of audience sympathy to pull you through to the next idea. I'm a big Leo fan. Um, I, I think he's terrific in this, actually. Uh, I, I, a film we haven't spoken about where I think he really starts to turn the corner into mature performances and to, to really become a, a great actor was The Aviator. I don't know whether you saw that. Oh uh, yeah, because yeah. I I think he was pretty much deserved of the war. That was for me. That was his best performance at the time. And he um, when he won the Revenant, you know, I, I, I Revenant's okay. I I didn't think it deserved as much as it got. But I, um, I was very annoyed by the whole. Let's give him yeah, an Oscar for eating some, yeah. something gross, like. He, he far more deserved it in The Wolf of Wall Street or The Aviator for me. Mm. And, you know, thereafter, um, you've got, what do you have, like Blood Diamond, Body of Lies, Revolutionary Road. He, like you could, Gally said, he, he's been a quite a smart, astute actor and he's picked really good roles. And, 
you can see his development in roles and style and acting and his maturity and the, the baby face thing, Matt, I, I didn't, I've never really considered that for him. And that was never a problem for me in Inception because I, I believe in the character and what drove him. And I think Leo really holds this film t- together in that as a centrifuge. And it, it, we, we've talked about emotion. I think he does deliver it. I think, but it's a really subtle thing he does in this film. Uh, he, he's, it, the way he considers Mal and thinks back on it and he can't look at his own children, it pains him so much. I, I really buy into his performance. This I think he does a very clever thing of the subtle and the man who's trying to stay in control because he knows that people around him need to see that he's in control because he is the the the, the, the main guy, the, the thief, really, uh, who's had to turn to crime in order to, to, to drive his life and to give him purpose almost. And when he needs to be big, he, he can be big in this film, um, which we see when Marl throws herself out the window um, because that that's the emotional pull. And I think it's the range that I Leo the has. With our attorney, explaining how I'm fearful for my safety. How you threatened to kill me. Why did you do that? I love you, Don. Why would you do this? I freed you from the guilt of choosing to leave them. We're going home to our real children. No, 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 no. Ma, you listen to me, all right? Ma, look at me, please. You're waiting for a train. Ma, goddammit, don't do this. A train that will take you far away. James and Philippa are waiting. You know where you hope this train will take you. They're waiting for us. not so sure. Ma, look at me. But it doesn't matter. Ma, goddammit. Because you'll be together. Sweetheart! Look at me! Oh no! Jesus Christ! She had herself declared sane by three different psychiatrists. It made it impossible for me to try to explain the nature of her madness. So, I ran. Um, if we're talking about performances, thereafter, you know, like, I, th- I don't think Joseph Gordon-Levitt's performance works in this film without Leo because there's something about Levitt's performance that's a bit I don't know, like he's delivering dialogue for me in this film. Mm. Um, everyone else I think is great, but it's all around him. He, he's the drive of the film. There's a, there's a Joseph Gordon-Levitt moment that especially really irked me this time out. And I, I don't need, uh, no, it's when he's, um, uh, sitting in the lobby of the big glass room and, uh, they, mm. they notice that all of the, oh, yeah. all of the subconscious sprites are starting to look at them. So he's like, Maybe, maybe you should give me a kiss on the face. Yeah. Well, and then no. she does. I guess it didn't work. I still got a kiss on the face. Yeah. It didn't really work. Then he's got like a, a smirk an and shot. it's weird, right? Like it is. It doesn't quite work. I, I think it's like the male equivalent, uh, equivalent of the duck face, you yeah. know, the Instagram kind of duck face. It's like a blue steel kind of thing he's doing <laughs> where he wrinkles his forehead and narrows his eyes. But he, he's still, he's another one. He just plays, he's well third rock from the sun. <laughs> I just can't quite get behind it. You know? I, I like Levitt usually, but I, I liked him in 10 Things I Hate About You. I and mean, if you talk about 10 Things I Hate About You and another Nolan actor, if you put Heath Ledger in the Arthur role, I think he does a better job. Yeah. I think he, I think he brings a lot more to it. And you spoke about humor, Gally. Uh, someone spoke about humor. I'm sorry. That was that. Kiss. Well, I said that this one was lacking a little bit, but probably justifiably so. so. Yeah. Well, well, that, that's where the problem is. That, that kiss scene there is supposed to be humor. 
And it's really, it's not well judged and it's not well delivered, but we rely on Tom Hardy for the humour in the film and maybe a little bit of Yusuf because Hardy's quite funny, actually, I think. Well, yeah. Hardy, Hardy comes off. Um, he's, he's basically the, the sort of the, the, uh, the sort of the joker in the pack, isn't he? He's the one who's able to at least have a little bit of fun. And because he brings that kind of flair and thespian, and the flamboyance to his character, even the way he's dressed and the way that he performs. He he mm-hmm. really does come out of the film as one of those people that you go, there's someone who's memorable in a whole host of characters that are yeah. quite functional. He's the one that you kind of get yeah. drawn to. He's the same as like I, The Revenant. I wasn't a big fan of The Revenant either. I mean, I liked the music and I thought it looked great, but I also thought it was kind of a boring slog. But he comes out of that as like, he's just, uh, he's magnetic like he's 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 doing stuff uh i wondered about him as a potential bond with nolan directing actually had a bit of a theory that nolan is kind of incepting uh you know trying trying to implant something in our minds that he should be the next bond bond director but uh i'm not sure who'd be better as a bond if it's killian murphy or uh killian's my choice killian looks the part doesn't he but tom hardy might work and with a he has like a uh, a Connery-esque magnetism, I think. And there's, there's kind of some Bond-esque things here too where he's gambling and stuff like that. He can play really arch, which I'm not a huge Bond fan, so uh, I, I don't know whether I'm, I'm allowed to, to recommend one. But, uh, you know, you were saying that you, you like your Bond when it gets a bit silly. Yeah. I think he could probably bring a bit of that to it. Like, he can mm. he can walk that line between, like, like you say, that there is like a camp element to, to some of the, the stuff he does. Not always, but in this, it's, you know. He, he could bring that Star Trek nemesis energy to a Bond. <laughs> <laughs> I think Nolan needs to do a bit more to, to get a Bond. Maybe maybe not as, um, as Sam Mendes has now made uh, two, but sometimes he's hit and miss, isn't he, with his action sequences? Because there is there are two dazzling sequences in this film for me with action. The first one in the opening half an hour when Leo gets um, the dream collapses and he falls into the mm. bathtub with the water coming in and the practical in-camera effect. I think it just looks amazing with Leo kind of looking up. And it works, doesn't it? It, it really does work because it's kind of eerie and unnatural. And it's probably one of the one of the only moments of surreal, abstract dream stuff. And the other one is obviously the Arthur fight on the gimbal with the zero gravity that they use, which is amazing and kind of um, is the is the best sequence in the film, in my opinion, certainly when it comes down to action. But then with the, with those scenes and like the stuff in the Dark Nights with the chase and whatnot, which are great, you get the the rubbish Bond gunfight stuff in the third one with that, and also the the continuation of the uh, is it Yusuf? It really works in the cinema because it doesn't give you a chance to get. Um, super tired and, and, and bored with any one sequence because they have three different action scenes just kind of cake layered on top of each other, all happening concurrently, but in different kind of time frames, but at the same time. So it means that if you get bored with this one, you can just cut back to the snow thing and you can cut back to Yusuf. But like after a while, you are just watching that actor playing Yusuf uh, react to squibs going off on the car window, like the, the frame. I don't know how many times that one henchman shoots the frame of the window next to his head, but does not shoot him. And also manages to not hit anyone in a packed car full of people. And then the, in the snow chase, like you say, is just, um, it's, it's a computer game. It's, it's just picking yeah. them off as they ski down. Like, 
because they go on for quite a long time. Like uh, in the timestamp, it's um, it's an hour before we go into the dream in general, before we enter like Fisher's dream to, to start with. And then you're in the snow bit by, I think, an hour and 40. That means there's like an hour of film left with these sort of concurrent sequences on top of each other. And yeah, they do tend to, they, they run out of steam because some of the action is really visceral. The, the, I like the chase through Mombasa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's good, too. good sequence. It's got a real like physicality to it. Um, I remember that sequence where the, you, the camera's inside a van when it hits a dude, right? And his head kind of ricochets off the window. Yeah, you feel the hit, don't you? Yeah, stuff like that. That's, you know, that's, um, that's the sort of thing that, that is quite, uh, influential. It's something that other action filmmakers would, would then kind of take on. But... One of the action sequences that was make me laugh from Merlin, and, um, well, not, yeah, is slightly different because this is how I'm, I look at films sometimes. Uh, in the Dark Knight Rises, when Bane's fighting Batman on the foot of, I don't know, like some town square building. I can't remember mm. what it is. Government building. Um, next time you watch it, I implore you to watch the extras fighting in the background. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of like grapple, grapple, sway side to side. We're fighting, we're yeah. fighting, we're fighting. Um, <laughs> but, but of course, the, Devlin said that it's that cinematic thing that your eyes are on Batman and Bane, so it's okay because that fight's quite... I like it when Bane I'd just be happy that they're on. not sprites at that point. Like a lot of directors would just CGI everything in. So I, I'd take a Nolan Bond any day. And I think he could get it. I, I think the only thing he's bargaining with now is that he wants final cut and he wants to, you know, do something his way with it. Cause I know he's a Bond fan and uh, I don't know if it would be funny if he cast um tom hardy I, I i think tom hardy would work in a humorous way but i don't think nolan's quite capable of the daft roger moore style right of, mm. of bond that i love um but i do think back to yours galley I, I do think the the arthur fight scene in the hallway that i do think it is one of the most visually arresting things in the film and it's one of the best maybe since the matrix as far as you know the, the bullet time and all that as, as far as what an action scene can be so mm. I would trust Nolan to do something. Yeah. Uh, and I trust him to do it very practically. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. And not ruin it with CG. So that, that's one thing I would trust. Uh, one other thing I wrote down was that, um, there, there was a quote from a Robert Rodriguez filmmaking book that I like about, um, uh, called, uh, Rebel Without a Crew about how he made his first movie. And he said, when you get to Hollywood, they, they stop you from having, uh, from shooting everything. They give you a second unit. So they do all the explosions and they blow up a car and they do whatever. And you get stuck with all the dialogue scenes. And it's like, well, what, that's not why I got into this. I want to do the action. I want to be like John Woo or something. So um, I, I feel like Nolan hangs on to a lot of those, um, the, the physical action. And I think it would be in, in good hands, perhaps, with him. I worked with the director of um, Dread uh, a few years ago, Pete Travis. I want to say his name is Pete Travis. Um, and he, well, he was my new fan. I took piss out of him with Leicester beat him 5-2, which was a, 5-3, which was a really good day. But, um, he talks about Dread that way, Matt, and he, he had a very disappointing time on Dread because second unit got all the action. And that's what, that was his vision and what he wanted to do. And they lumbered in with all the other stuff and he, he was a bit pissed off about that. Yeah. It reminds me of, um, John McTiernan talking about the original Predator. When he was, um, he got the second unit doing the assault on the, the, uh, rebel camp 
and they had some oh, director really? from the from the A team. Oh, yeah. And and he kept and he got he, the trampoline oh, explosions like from Commando. Yeah. And stuff. I was listening to the commentary and he was like, <laughs> basically, I was furious when I saw the dailies because everything looked like it was from the A team. People bouncing off, and he was like, you can, <laughs> he was like, you can tell the footage I. That's all still because, in. Yeah, no, yeah. it's in. It's in the film. He says you can tell. There's the some trampolining, I right? I remember yeah. some guy. Yeah, there's, some, there's some trampolining. There's some. There's loads of low shots of people just flying over the camera. And uh, he was saying you can tell the stuff I shot because there's actual some there's some focus pulls and there's some actual whip pans. Whereas everything that the A team director shot was on stilts and just people shooting and oh, falling over. So and there's annoying. a little there's a little mm. bit of that. Like you say, there's a little bit of that in Inception, especially. We're going to talk about Wally Fister because the lighting, it, well, the, the cinematography of this film is absolutely phenomenal, like all Nolan films, especially when he's mm. worked with Wally Fister. But the sequence that I, I actually took, I didn't enjoy the action for, but now I've got major, major respect for is the stuff in the, um, the streets, which are supposed to be raining. Mm. And that was shot in, that was shot in LA. And the way that they did it is they just got massive, massive blockers, light blockers, and they had to work out where the sun was. So they could turn the streets of LA into a dark, overcast um, sort of setting, which I thought was incredible. And and Wally Fister kind of came up with all of this, you know, again using that Nolan technique of being very precise, almost like an engineer, uh, which of course you have to be as a filmmaker. I mean, it's all it's all maths, isn't it? You know, just to do uh, keep things in focus, mm. for crying out loud. But I just I didn't like the action in it because again it felt like shooty shooty at, at car, but nothing terribly exciting. Um, even when the train comes in and barrels in, it kind of feels a bit, not naff, but like for a film about... It's weird, isn't it? Because it's so, such a strong image, limited. but it, yeah. it plays sterile. The, the interesting about Wally Fister is that he is one of those cinematographers that then got a Yander Bont, got an opportunity to direct himself. And um, you guys see Transcendence? Yeah. 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 <laughs> no. <laughs> Not good, is it? Unfortunately for him, and it's a shame because he's another one of those Bill Hope, uh, Bill Pope guys that came up from a rock thriller kind of trash. Did, didn't someone say about him when he was working in erotic movies that no one could light underwear like him? <laughs> <laughs> I remember, I remember our, um, our cinematography tutor that we got in uh, uh, third year, um, Fabian. No, not Fabian. The, uh, the 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 later after after Fabs went off and got big time. Um, yeah. that is, uh, Fabian Wagner, DOP on Game of Thrones, isn't it? I'm a huge fan of Hogarden. Yes, loves Hogarden. Uh, but yeah, after, after he went off and got, like, actually successful, uh, the, uh, the guy who came in and, and, and took over from him in, in third year used to talk about, um, Wally Fister and, and he said that, you know, cause, uh, all of us cinematography students were obviously very pretentious and annoying. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to kind of point out that, like, it doesn't matter what you shoot, you know, everything is an opportunity to shoot something that looks nice. And, uh, yeah, Wally Fister was, uh, was a cinematographer on, do you remember all those, like, uh, we talked about this in Basic Instinct where he talked about the, the erotic TV slash straight to video erotic thriller boom that lasted about three or four years and then ended up on Channel the, 5. The Shannon Tweed, yeah. Yeah, he was, uh, Shannon Huiri's, uh, cinematographer of choice. Nice. If you remember Shannon Huiri, who later went on to be in Me, Myself, and Irene. Huh. She's, she's right. the mum yeah. who he starts. Uh, right. um, <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, yeah, suckling. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that scene doesn't play anymore. New. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, no, it, it's just he he does a really good job in this, and it's a shame that Transcendence was a bit was was utter rubbish. Um, because obviously Yander Bond was the one you know linked to Basic Instinct, who went on to make Speed and my one of my other cinematic experiences, Twister, uh, and then he just burned he, he burnt his career once he did uh, you know Taken. God, we're getting into all sorts of six degrees of Kevin Bacon when he did The Haunting, which was uh, six degrees of Taken. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's dreadful, dreadful, dreadful film. But you know, Zeta Jones being sexy lesbian—that was that was about as good as it got. It's the first—it's the first time I've watched it, and it's troubled me that bad guys can't shoot thing. And I tried to defend it that it's mm. the subconscious—you know, it's not actual people shooting. But anyway, um, you know, it's hardly heat that that car chase scene where you feel every bullet hits, and it, it, it seems to be a realistic uh, militarized shooting. Um, and the Tom Hardy stuff at the end, I just kind of see it more as fun rather than anything now. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, it's funny. This week was where I kind of highlighted that they, they could have been elevated as a, a shootout. Well, here's, here's the one then, because we're going to get into the dream world that Nolan creates. And it kind of speaks to that third, I think, problem level with the action. When Leo teaches Ariadne how to manipulate the world, it's awesome. We see, you know, they've, they've sat at the cafe and then Ariadne has got an amazing, she's a great architect, she's got a great imagination. She starts manipulating the world, creates bridges, and Leo's like, you can't keep doing that, people will notice and the subconscious will come in. And, and don't draw on real things as well. Mm. Yeah, don't draw on real things, etc., etc. That stuff never comes back into the film. And I do feel like that's, I, I don't know whether it was a budget thing or whether Nolan was so keyed in on making a bond. There's, there's once where it does come into it just a little bit where, uh, Cobb says to Ariadne, did Eames build anything in his dream? Mm. And she says, I, I don't know whether I should tell you because you're bringing subconscious into it. And I did like, um, there's that suggestion of it there that, you know, Eames is a builder as well. No, I, I get that. I guess I'm just talking about when Ari- Ariadne starts building stuff and we see it in, and we see it happen as, as she's walking and it looks incredible and it's really like, wow, this is amazing. How, how, and you get the idea of why Cobb would love would live in, him and Mal would love living in that dream where you could just build stuff. It never comes back into play. Like when they're struggling at the end, instead of a tunnel, why didn't she just create something you know, use something because yeah. I think at that point Fisher, and, Fisher and like knows a, he's in another, a dream. Um, yeah, another big kind of uh, dramatic thing, like the the rolling over of the Paris street, which I think everyone can agree is like pretty stunning and not something we'd ever seen before. Mm. But it's a it's a visual without a meaning. But also uh, in story terms, then they're told not to really do that because then the dreamer will understand that it's not their dream and it will start to collapse. But Fisher knows he's in the dream at that point, doesn't he? Because I think even there's even a joke when they get to the snow. No, because he's, like, he's oh, done couldn't... the, he's um, made him trust, uh, Cobb has made him trust him by saying, bringing his attention to the dream and making him trust him. So if he's fucking with the dream even more, the dream will start collapsing because of his subconscious will be looking for the dream. Uh, oh, you know, maybe you're right then, because I just thought that he knew he was in the dream because he says, oh, couldn't we have dreamed up a, an island, a, a, a beach, beach. Instead, of, <laughs> instead of this? Which was, again, one of the only other moments of uh, of levity. And I think well, that's because um, he's got Kill- his trust Kill- now. By, he calls it. Yeah, he's run, what, the, Mr. He's run Mr. the gambit. The gambit Mr. Charles, uh, I believe it Charles, is. Charles, thank it? you. 
Yeah, yeah. You know, you, yeah. you may be right, Patrick, but I just thought it was a shame that they never brought that back. And, t- and talking about, like, you know, wanting Nolan to, like, direct Bond, just with these visuals and, and the, the, the way this film is shot, have you seen Doctor Strange? Yes, I was going to say that, um, so the, the bending over of, of the Paris street and stuff was obviously, like, a big visual inspiration for Doctor Strange, but I guess yeah. um, in that film it sort of makes a little bit more sense because they are time and space bending, like, yeah. wizards and shit. Yeah, and and that, but I'd love to see Nolan do something like that, or or like a Spider Verse type mm. thing. And yeah. I, I know Sam Raimi's kind of getting into Doctor Strange: The Multiverse Madness now, which sounds great, and I hope they really go with it and bring in the Spider Verse kind of influences there. But with it, that in mind, for Nolan to play around with something comic booky and a bit more. I don't know if he, like you said, Gally. If he, I suppose if he could be unleashed with those ideas and these visuals that we saw when Ariadne was uh, building, was being the architecture, I'd love to see a film like that, just without any real rules holding him back. And then the other bit that I found to be slightly lacking was the the limbo, right? The unconstructed dream space. I just, I, I don't know. I guess it speaks to guys. What do you think about the? the lack of surreal abstractness of the dream that it does it end up just feeling like a device as opposed to something that you can actually have a play with. You mentioned Lynch. I was going to say, uh, uh, probably a more direct reference and, uh, it is fortunate timing that, uh, Patrick, you told us that you just watched it this morning. Uh, I watched the film last week as well, but I'd seen it a few times before and it's a film I really like, which is, um, uh, Paprika. Satoshi Kon's uh, animated film, Paprika. Because who would have thought I'd bring up something Japanese that's only vaguely relevant to what we're seeing? But in this case, I think it's a lot more relevant. It's a very different film, but um, I do know that, uh, for example, when you're talking about Ariadne creating the, the Paris streets and stuff, there's the scene where she swings like a big mirror yeah. across, and then she puts a hand on it and it shatters and she walks through it. That's legit taken like straight from Paprika. There's a sequence where the, the character Paprika is in a street yeah. and there's a crack appears in a mirror and she steps through it and behind it is like a stage set. And the plot of Paprika is that there is a device which allows people to enter other people's dreams. The, the first character we're introduced to who is, who is dreaming is a, uh, a cop and he, uh, he goes through this amazing kind of uh, sequence in a, a, a a circus, and then he runs down a corridor. And as he's running down a corridor, which is like a red carpeted hotel corridor, um, he's running, and then suddenly, like the ground kind of starts unraveling under him, as if it's like made of a really loose carpet. And uh, there's also a guy who's been shot, and he's falling in extreme slow motion in front of him, while everything else in the scene plays out in real time. I mean, some of this stuff is just is far too convenient to have not been one influence in the other. Also, the timeframes are that Paprika came out in 2006 and was pretty well regarded, and Inception came out four years later, which is just about enough time to make sure that some of these ideas would bleed across. I'm not saying that no one ripped it off. I really, you know, I would imagine that his idea for Inception far predated having seen Paprika, but I've literally never seen him acknowledge the influence anywhere. I don't know whether that is a thing that you have to do when you're a filmmaker in in order to sort of not really open yourself up to being sued. But there's a lot of ideas that that Paprika has that bleed across. But um, Paprika treats dreams 
with much more of a kind of, I guess, like a Jungian idea of them that they are, they're abstract, but they have basis in reality, but they, uh, it's a surrealist film. I think one of the things about Paprika is that it, it's natural dreams rather than manipulated dreams. Isn't yes. It? Because, because it's someone, it's a really vivid representation of how dreams, mm. uh, develop and change and manifest. Rather than, you know, when Yusuf is the dreamer, they all know they're going to a specific place where they've designed. Yeah. And mm, yeah. that's the thing, Gally, that maybe that holds the film back is the rules of the dreams and the technology. Whereas in Paprika, it's just, well, they say that it's, uh, you know, undesigned dreamscape in, in Inception, but this is what I loved Devlin about Paprika was just, it was bonkers at times. Mm. And it's it's kind of like a it's got a, a loopy sort of logic that it follows to an extent, but it does kind of it loops in, and it also has a lot to say about the the way that films and dreams can kind of overlap and interact with each other. Like mm, yeah. um, at, at one point during Conor Cowher's dream, he just drops right into uh, a Bond movie, literally into a Bond movie, and he's being garroted by an unseen assailant behind him, and then he drops into. Uh, Roman Holiday, the Audrey Hepburn movie, and then Tarzan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's um, it's kind of wild, like uh, how much sort of crosses over from the two. But yeah, I think what I loved about something like Paprika, I, I finally got around to watching The Man Who Who Killed Don Quixote as well, which is another film that talks about how films and dreams overlap. And I think I like that sort of raggedness and the the kind of the way that dreams can. Um, illuminate things about ourselves like emotionally without them having to make a literal sense. Whereas, you know, the, the dreams in this, they are, they are regimented. They are, this thing happens. Yeah. One dream is literally a white van is being chased. The closest thing we get to it is, is Dom Cobb bringing mm. in the freight train. Yeah. And Marl into the dreams. And then there's that really interesting scene we haven't discussed yet where Cobb, does he say he's experimenting and he's experimenting with Yusuf and the sedative? He's, he's locking up, are you talking about the elevator sequence where he's, he's locked, he's stored up the memories? Oh, when yeah. Ariadne leaves and she sees uh, Cobb hooked up to the dream machine. That yeah, and they're in the elevator and each level is a memory of Cobb's. And she says, of course, you told us not to build on memory, but c- can we see that scene and that sequence is he's creating all of that rather than their memories and subconscious. It's creating Mal so that he doesn't have to let her go yet, which is why we get the payoff of him letting her go at the end. Yeah, no, I think, I think you're right. And that's probably one of the only sequences that feels like it's dabbling into that sort of surreal space. And I, d- I read an interview mm-hmm. with Nolan when, he, when the film came out and he mentioned how he wanted to keep it relatively broad brush, universal. And I think that's why I, I, latched on to some of the uh, Freudian ideas because we've all had that we've all fallen asleep on the sofa for an hour and then woken up and it be 10 hours later I've done it many many times so the so the way that the film talks about time and how dreams um when you dream that time will go faster um outside of the dream so when you wake up and so that all felt like resonated with me I don't know about you guys but I certainly certainly felt that same with the you never really know how you get into a dream 
Um, certainly Yusuf needing a Yusuf piss and it, and it, and it <laughs> raining. Uh, although normally when I dream, I need a wee. I actually literally go for a wee in the dream and that's how I know I'm about to wet myself. So I wet myself <laughs> up. <laughs> Some of those universal truths, he does, he does sprinkle in there. And I think that that does help the film. And it's one of the reasons why I think there was repeat viewings is because people were, were sort of like, Oh yeah, no, I really recognize this in a real broad brush because you'll admit. Devlin Patrick that Paprika is a not to say that it's a it's a niche film but a, a, a wider audience wouldn't have access. No, Paprika exactly. There's there's a there's a cap on how much wild. I mean, the the film is already that's the thing that I think like in in Inception isn't complex. It's complicated. Whereas Paprika, uh, Paprika is is uh, is complex. There's ideas fizzing out of it in all directions, and it leaves you a lot to sit with whereas you know inception is is is, uh is like a web and you have to pick your way through it and this relates to this and it's things nested in other things a lot of the comparisons was to the matrix i think at Mm. the time they just they needed a film to say hey what's this film like and they went well it's kind of like the matrix i started thinking about vanilla sky oh very good the matrix was a film that had a kind of big blockbuster framework with which to smuggle ideas and the ideas they were smuggling in were quite simple and thus very universal so you have um the the kind of descartes you know the the idea of what if reality doesn't actually exist and we're just like a a a subconscious in an experiment and no one else around us is real or, or something like that so that's like it's kind of like a good little primer for a really really basic philosophical concept being smuggled in to a big action movie you know, surrounded by Kung Fu on wires and, and stuff we'd never seen before and people in leather jackets and techno music and stuff. And the other is that there's the, you know, the idea of we're, we're literally just being used, uh, we're being plugged into a machine. We're a faceless corporate drone in a, you know, in a shirt and tie. Nobody even knows our first name. So, you know, there's those, those two ideas that is, is really what the matrix has to give us, which is one, a, a philosophical idea that maybe reality isn't reality. And the other that, you know, uh, our kind of drudgery of an existence that, you know, we're being literally used by a system. Um, why, what I'm not sure that, um, Inception has is anything like that. I don't know if you guys have any kind of wider theories, but I just, I don't know whether Inception has anything to say beyond being a very well constructed piece of like pop art cinema. I think. Nolan's explored Inception before in his films, um, notably Memento. And just a reminder to the audience of spoilers here. Because in Memento, uh, I forgot his name, Guy Pierce's character, he essentially performs Inception on himself. Leonard, thank you. Mm. Because he's given him the idea against um, Pantoliano and which drives his whole motive for the film and, and ends up killing him. As we see at the beginning, and it's a really well constructed uh, idea though that mind and matter can be manipulated, and I that that's what I see the ideas in here is his exploration of uh so maybe psychoanalysis and how you even um hypnosis that you can check you know you can manipulate somebody, and this is a science fiction film of. How, how that can work in, in many respects there with the side note of his relationship with his wife because with Marl the the twist as it's kind of revealed at the end is 
that he has performed Inception on her, using her totem in their dream world to bring her back to the real world. But it's manipulated in her that she doesn't believe she's in the real world. What, what does she say? Mm. She says, um, what, what if I, that you're, the world you live in isn't real. Mm. And that's kind of what I think the film is looking at, Devlin. Uh, we spoke about Freud and, and the, the basic parts of how the brain works there. But I think Nolan is definitely exploring how one person can manipulate another. Uh, yeah. You know, d- disguised as a heist movie and disguised as science fiction in a way. Oh, and that was the stuff, Patrick, that I, I, and I'm not, I don't know about you, Matt, but that was the stuff that I got emotionally attached to was the, the, yeah, the that twist at, that twist at the end where actually Marl, who's been sort of portrayed for most of the film as a kind of femme fatale, um, antagonist, mm-hmm. To then find out that actually it's almost like a Greek tragedy that Dom was responsible for, um, for her demise. You, you know, planting the idea that her life wasn't real. And the bit that really gets me, and it gets me every time, and it's down to Hans Zimmer as well as the performance, but it's also the shot selection that Nolan chooses is when he talks to her at the end and he's trying to console and it's essentially, he's talking to his own guilt. Um, and he says, we did live a life. We, we had 50 years together. And then oh, you see the shot yeah. of the two old people mm. holding hands. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you, you know, right now, every time I cry, just cry at that bit. And I cried the other, <laughs> last week with um, Danielle, my fiance was just like, she just turned to me and said, are you crying? I went, yep. Yeah. You remember when you asked me to marry you? Yes. You said you dreamt that we crawled together. But we did. miss you more than I can bear, but we had our time together, and I have to let you go. Agreed. It's the, the second viewing, that's what got me. It was the, the cob, the, the tragic cob storyline that I was much more invested in the second time I saw it. What about Fisher and his relationship with his dad? Like, because... The other day, it really got me when he, they bring him back to the third level and Hardy goes, go, go now, quick. And he sees his dad. He finds the little windmill and he has that moment with his dad. He says, I know you disappointed me. He says, no, I'm disappointed you wanted to be me. It's not even that, Patrick. He says, disappointed you tried, which is actually even more tried, hard hitting. I, I think it, I think it really hits. And Killian does such a good job of, He's a very subtle, controlled, you know, affluent performance in the whole film. But, you know, he, he, he's always got this far look. He, you can tell he's thinking stuff. He's considering everything. But he breaks down there in his dad's bedside. And it, yeah, that gets me as well. Yeah, we haven't really talked about him much, but he, he, I've written down that he's the best actor in it. Kelly so Murphy, good. and mm-hmm. he, he spends a lot of his time in Nolan's films with a cloth bag over his head, but unfortunately, <laughs> but he, he's he's really great in in this. He's the strongest performer because he's given very little, and actually, if you read it on a piece uh, of paper, more so than Tom Hardy. Would, uh, I think so because Tom Hardy is given the freedom to be like the, to to excel. Leo is doing a Cary Grant kind of star turn, which is he, he, you're right. He's the pivot. He's the one that's holding everything together. 
But Killian Murphy could have so easily played it as a bratty, rich, mm. dislike. You could have no sympathy for that character easily, but because he's quite an intense actor, that bit when, and, and R.I.P. Pete Possilway, when he's at his bed yeah. and he's just, he looks at the, the little pinwheel and starts crying and his head just mm. falls into Possilway's dead uh, hand. I also get caught up at that. And that could so easily have just been an empty emotional scene that's just there yeah. for, for story purposes. But it really does resonate. You're right, Patrick. Mm. And, you, and, and you know, it sets I, I, up well, because you've got the work from when uh, Eames is acting as uh, Berenger and, and he goes to Cobb after, like, this, this father, this, this kid's got more problems with his father than we thought. Because um, he's quite adamant there that, you know, my dad would never want this for me. It's a journey that Killing goes on, and it, he does display it very well. He really does, and uh, we, you've you've reminded me. God, do we need to talk talk about Tom Barrington? I, I thought when, that would bring when, him when... in quite nicely. <laughs> <laughs> when Tom Barrington, yeah, we've been talking quite seriously about this film, but it's time for me to lower the tone. When I saw Tom Barrington in this film. <laughs> Honestly, I thought he was sucking Cohagen's air in Total Recall. Like he, he looks like he's bloated, <laughs> fat. Like he's had too much red meat, and they just—I'm sorry. It, I, it was, wait, it, like, he can barely speak. Like I couldn't understand the word he was saying. I was like, "You're, you're like, like what? What are you talking about, Baron? He's got old Nick Nolte, hasn't he? Yeah. Oh, way naughty. Deep naughty. Naughty Hulk naughty, isn't it? Like, rah, 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 rah. Those bastards have at me for two days. They have someone with access to your father's office, and they're trying to open his safe. Yeah. They thought I'd know the combination, but I don't know it. Yeah, well, neither do I, so. What? Maurice told me that when he passed, you were the only one to be able to open it. No, he never, he never gave me any combination. Maybe he did. Maybe he just didn't know it was a combination. Well, what then? I don't know. Some meaningful combination of, uh, of numbers based on your, your your experiences with Maurice. We didn't have very many uh, meaningful experiences together. Perhaps after your mother died. After my mother died, you know what he told me? Robert, there's really... Nothing to be said. Oh, well, he, he was bad with emotion. I was 11. He looks confused. <laughs> he looks like they kind of, like he's not quite sure why he's wearing a suit and saying the words he's saying. <laughs> like, some, <laughs> like he literally has been kidnapped with a sack on his head. Maybe he was just, maybe he was playing it too method. Oh dear. I mean, Nolan's got like, he's got form for this, hasn't he? You know, Rook Hour and Batman Begins. David Bowie in The Prestige. He likes to bring in these kind of big, recognizable figures to play these small parts. And you kind of go, oh, wow, yeah. Matt Damon and, and Interstellar. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Interstellar. <laughs> oh, but yeah, Tom Berenger in Inception. It just, it really, it looked like he was like Arnie when he's like, oh, 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 and he's like, his head starting to blow up. Um, just, he looked too red. Like the makeup artist clearly couldn't dampen it down, and just oh, I felt so bad for the sniper. What do you think Nolan is a fan of? Do you think Nolan is a, a platoon guy or sniper? Or it's got to be sniper. sniper. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> no, it's got to be it's got to be platoon, hasn't it? I reckon. Uh... I should shout out the Wanza, the um, on deadly ground. No, not on deadly ground. I'm sorry. Shoot to kill, aka deadly pursuit. Oh yes, which was a, uh, a Sydney Poitier and Tom Berenger. You have asked me to watch this film pop. for years, and I am <laughs> so sorry that I've still never done it. <laughs> There's one scene where they they rub each other down in an igloo. So that's why. Wow. <laughs> You know what? You know what? I think Nolan was a fan of actually, Matt Slither, Tom Berenger. Mm-hmm. There you go, Slither, Slither maybe. maybe. Some major in Slither. He's the cop. Wow, yeah, it's been too long, man. You, again, you wouldn't recognise him from Inception to Slither. You would not recognise him at all. It's just, it's a shame because um, you know he, he was. He, everyone who's seen Platoon, he's great in Platoon. Um, he's just one of those actors that's kind of been around. Um, I know him mainly from kind of mm. B slot though. Um, but, but yeah, it just, it was just, it felt like an odd choice. You know what? He probably loved Major League. Ellen Page, I don't really know what ever happened to her. She sort of just disappeared on my, off my radar. I don't, I don't anyway. think she wanted to do acting. I think she went into education. Oh, she, she's in, um, Umbrella Academy. Yeah, yeah, which I I haven't seen, but I hear good things. No, I've, not, I've not seen it. Is it good, Patrick? I haven't seen it. Sorry. All oh, right. Okay. Well, <laughs> that's that's weird. It's one of those shows where it's like it definitely exists, but does it? Mm. It's like a tree falling <laughs> in the woods, and no one's around to watch Netflix. And it's kind of like a thankless role, really. She's she. It's not that she's annoying in this, but she's just constantly like, "So why does this happen? So why do you do that? What is it, Cobb?" Mm. And I just feel like. It's such a functional role, and it's kind of a bit. She does it it's well. Maybe a bit, yeah, she does it. She does it well. She does it well because it could so easily have been really annoying. But I feel bad and for the her. Film needs her. The film really needs the film her. Needs her from a functional point of view, but her character is not a character, is it? She's just there to. Well, it is. It isn't. I'll defend her for one motive, which is I've said it before. She's there to help the others because she's the one who learns about Cobb's problem. The subconscious, conscious, um, bringing in Mal all the time. And that's how she forces her way onto the flight to, to join them anyway. Mm. She says, if I, if I don't come, you need to tell Arthur. And she's there and she solves the problem at the end because she's the one with the astute awareness that Cobb is a problem and to help him with it, which is, again, we go back to the theology of her name to help Cobb through the labyrinth to, to, to sort out his, um, Problem with Mal, so she does have a purpose there. No, there's still another way. We just have to follow Fisher down there. Not enough time. No, but there, there will be enough time down there, and we will find him. Okay, as, as soon as Arthur's music kicks in, just use the defibrillator to revive him. We can give him his his own kick down below. Look, you get him in there. As soon as the music ends, you blow up the hospital, and we all ride the kick back up the layers. Well, it's worth the shot. Besides, if you know the guards, I thought I set the charges. Besides, we'll never make it, will he? God, come on, we've got to try this. Go for it. If you are not back before the kick, I am gone with or without you. She's right. She's right. It's maybe a bit of a Nolan ding that you can have at him that he never. He hasn't given too many female characters like uh, the same weight, maybe. He's got that thing as well where it's always dead wives, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I watched the procedure last night and it, 
it really did ring true. It was like Memento, Prestige, Inception. I was like, Jesus, everyone just dies who's a woman yeah. who's with our main characters. It's definitely a, a thing of his, that he, a repeated trope. Is it okay if we talk about the music a little? The 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 Dark Knight score was something that I I'd, I'd heard it done like that for the very first time. Like it's kind of a wall to wall aesthetic to it, and uh, I don't know if Dark Knight invented it, but it's the first time I'd really heard it done like that. And I I didn't really like it too much. I felt like I was being dragged through the two hours uh, without any kind of moments of reflection or mm-hmm. silence or or peace, and it was a bit too loud. And, uh, oh, it's too loud. <laughs> Turn it down. And, uh, there was too many kind of Zimmer stings, you know, um, but for, for this one, I was really interested in looking at the music. Johnny Marr was one of my guitar gods and he's in two of my favorite bands, the Smiths and the Cribs, who hail from Wakefield. Are you Cribs fans? Wakey. I remember a lot of people back at uni were, were, were big into the Cribs. Um, these, He's played at Brittanelle a few times, right? Yeah, they did. They play like full albums there and they do a Christmas Christmas show, nice. um, uh, which is quite cool. So he, he's a re- really interesting um, guy, Johnny Myers. He's, he's kind of like a, the Mozart of, uh, of pop music for me. He's, he was only 21 when the crib, when the, uh, the Smiths first formed and like the Cribs did everything they ever did between 84 and 87. So he's this real kind of guitar genius. He used to write all of the music and then give it to Morrissey to, to put the words over. And uh, so his involvement in Inception was really fascinating to me. And I, I watched the behind the scenes on YouTube with his kind of, he was playing his, his trademark uh, Fender Jaguar in this kind of staccato uh, picking style. And uh, Hans Zimmer was very complimentary about him saying that he didn't know anyone else who could quite bring the same energy to, to the music. So all of the guitar playing, as far as I know, is Ma. And then there's a lot of kind of physical force of the brass instruments they talk about too. And, uh, it's, it's a little heavy handed, um, if if we're being kind, but it does for, for better or worse kind of propel us through with this kind of wall to wall, uh, soundtrack. What did you think, Devlin? Do you have thoughts on this one? You kind of nailed it for me when it's, um, it's, it's very impressive. And I think, you know, in the cinema, in the cinema, I think it was one of the things that kind of helped me to, to just kind of go along for the ride with this one and, and, and really dig it. Um, but yes, it doesn't, it doesn't give you the, the space to sort of, to, to wait for, or to, or to, to interpret what you've seen. And then um, I guess that's mm. kind of what it's going for really, because it is a very long film and it is just trying to mm. kind of make sure that you don't drop off and get bored. Um, uh, the, I guess the, 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 the score itself, I really don't have an issue with. I actually think it's totally thematically appropriate for for the the type of film that it is, and it, and it fits really well. I guess um, Zimmer has gone on record elsewhere as having said that he sort of apologizes for all films now having the blunt, which <laughs> yeah. uh, which I guess is just what happens. And anytime something is successful, people will latch onto a specific thing about it and, and, and reuse it whether or not it's appropriate whatsoever, much as, you know, Nolan as a producer himself kind of, whether hands on or not kind of helped to drag across the, uh, the, the dark and gritty Batman aesthetic to Superman 
into Man of Steel for terrible effect. Mm. Did, did you know that the, the Edith, Edith Piaf um, song was kind of slowed down by Zimmer at, at some points? And mm. the, the score, the droning, that sounds just like droning, yeah. is basically a really slowed down version of, mm. of the Edith. Yeah, oh, no, okay. I'd, re- I'd read that, I read that, Matt. That's how he, and then that's what was the building blocks of the entire school, wasn't it? Which then introduced the war. That's actually, that's cool. Like I, I I dig that. That means it actually has some sort of internal reasoning and logic as to why it is the way it is. Yeah. I had to be, I had to watch the YouTube video to actually realize it when they were speaking about it. I didn't realize when I was watching the film, it did just play as a, as a drone, Mm. but subconsciously maybe, you know, maybe we take these things in. Who knows? Yeah, no, I, I think so. And I'm with Devlin. I think um, without the score, it really does propel you or through the entire story. And I think that first watch, again, you know, cinema is visuals as well as sound and music. And uh, I think that's what kind of made it feel like an event. Like I'd yeah. watch something that was like, holy shit, that was my senses were on overload the whole time because I was obviously trying to keep pace with it. But then I also had this score that was like, don't worry about that last scene. We're onto this one web. And you're like, Oh my goodness me. And you just feel like you've, you've just gone through the ringer. And I think, um, you know, you can look at Zimmer's score for gladiator, for example, how many scores subsequently after that had a, um, a musician, uh, a singer, sorry, just, do some opera yeah, over, like over music. Uh, it just it happened about for about four or five years because it was that was like oh everyone loves the Gladiator score let's do that and we kind of talked about score music when we referred to Michael Kamen in the Robin Hood Prince of Thieves. Mm. The reason I the reason I love this one is um, it's it's because it's got more melody than than say some of the Batman scores that felt like it was just sort of heavy heavy metal music almost going over the top of uh, the scenes. Yeah. This this felt like it had some melodic stuff and like i said when it slowed down into the piano it really did hit me emotionally what about you patrick sorry happily listening to all of that um i'm, I'm more on your side galley uh considering i well, as soon as i walked out of the screening last time we saw this at the cinema i bought it immediately on itunes uh because i really enjoyed the score a lot it, it, it is big and it is bold and kind of arresting the a sensory thing but i think that goes with how big and grand the film is um i I, i'm a big fan of zimmer i can't hide that and Mm. this score really works for me and i it's kind of compounded by the the last scene is just image and sound when he gets off the plane it's Mm. just the score there's no dialogue it's all looks and it's his journey and then we zoom in on the uh, spinning top of the table to the score, I think it's very well done. So, does the totem fall, or yeah, does it continue it does. to spin? It does fall. Is what I think. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of <laughs> agree. I, kinda... I suppose it depends where you where you like yeah, to sit. Did you see that Michael Kane? A fan asked him about it, and Kane said that the direction that Nolan gave him was: if Kane's in the scene, then it's real, and if it's not, it's a dream. And I buy this because Kane in his later years probably wanted some very clear instructions on, <laughs> on how to play this role and, and understand what was going on. So Nolan probably really right. stripped no it down. No Right. So, what is going oh, on? Am I buying a fucking dream or am I mad? <laughs> exactly. You can, you can picture it. And you, you want to have an answer for him. if he... We've gone all the trip. This is great. <laughs> but, however, there's also always the chance that 
he told Kane that, but he told other actors. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, of course. Of so course. Uh, Nolan is is he's working on many levels. So I don't buy that it's. Uh, I think it's designed in a way where it's open to interpretation. Personally, I think it falls. I think there's enough hints uh, with the wedding ring, and the, there's the also the sound of it slowing down is very. Uh, it's very certain. That, and it wobbles me, I, I as well, doesn't go. it? It does. I think when yeah, he's, yeah. we've seen it spinning in the dream, when it's proper dreaming, when, when, uh, Miles sees it, it, it doesn't wobble. It, it, it's a constant. But, um, mm. I think there's plenty. I, I do love, and I remember the first time I saw it, the ambiguity and just reveling in the questions mm. at the end of the film when, when we went to the credits, because that, that is great. And I, I'm all for that. And subsequent, um, for a long time, for many years, I was convinced that the inception was performed from Saito and Cobol against Cobb. I went really Uh, deep into it and I thought that he was the subject and that what it was was his imprisonment and, you know, for his crimes. Um, but then since I've watched it again, Matt mentioned the the wedding ring, so you can clearly see he's wearing a wedding ring in dream sequences when he's with Mal. But when it's real mm. and when he checks his totem, it, he's not wearing a wedding ring. And there's the key scene where he's tested the sedative from Yusuf for the first time, and he goes to check that he's not dreaming, and he fluffs it, and we don't see him check it, which is very deliberate and very clever uh, to suggest that right, we've got to pay attention from now on because we don't know what's real and we don't know what's a dream, which I think is a very good moment. Because again, there's that thing, Gally, you didn't realise he's gone to sleep or he's dreaming. You know, how did you get there? And you don't quite see all the pe- him fall to sleep in that sequence, which is it's all good and all ambiguous again. You can look at it the other way, can't you, Patrick? Because um, when he when he does the inception on Maul and then we get that like very hazy spring uh, kind of colour scheme against their home and they're lying on the pillows and they've been mm. dreaming for 50 yeah. years. She wakes up, he doesn't. So there's loads of little like yeah. counter arguments to, mm. to the one. You you're absolutely right and I think it does speak to Devlin's almost it doesn't really matter. There's there's no hidden meaning. I think that ambiguity is there just for this very thing for the the film for enjoyment. Yeah, and because it's what mm. one of the things we love about films is what we're doing right now is discussing them. And when you get a moment of ambiguity like that, it does really help. Because I always used to think, and I remembered it the first time I saw it. You know the the opening scene with DiCaprio speaking to his kids, and it felt very mm. end of days when he's got the gun in his hand and he's talking on the phone. And he's sort of, uh, the conversation he has with his children felt really false. Mm. It felt unreal. Like it was like, hey, is Philippa there? It's like, hey, what are you doing? Oh, we're digging. I was like, what? What is this? You know, this isn't a conversation you would have with children that you haven't seen for years or, or for, we don't know. Sorry, not years, but for, for at least 12 months at least. Um, so it all, all felt like unreal. Well, it took me a while to figure out Michael Caine as well at the end because I was like, hold on, he was in Paris. Why is he now in yeah. LA? And that threw me the first time. But but also, Gally, you know, when he's in his dream and in the elevators, he sees the children. I don't know whether it's the dialogue that's, I don't know, it's, there's a really weird line that Cobb has that she says, that's my son, he's digging for something, a worm or something, you know. Mm. Oh, there, there's a line. It's bizarre, uh, it's a after, really weird one. There's a line from one of the kids that say they're building a house on a cliff. Mm which it really throws it because Ooh. then that suggests limbo again. Yeah. Yeah. So we're back where we started. So 
I don't know if it knows. I think he's he's being Kubrickian and kind of playful and mischievous, and he's layered it in a in a way that it will be discussed, and that's that's fine. But here's a bigger question for me. Uh, I wonder if you thought about this. What is Cobb's totem? Uh, yeah, it could be the wedding ring. It could be the wedding ring. It's not. It's yeah, and if if it is the wedding ring, then the spinning of the top has no relevance because he could be in someone else's dream. There's just one more one more thing I'd like to. I don't know, just, just consider and talk about is, cause mm. I think I understand it a bit more now. I'm not sure when, cause I get that when fish is shot by Mull and he goes down into limbo, we've established that what's down there is what the remnants of whoever's been there before, which is cop. So when Ariadna and him go into the dream, cause they, they hook up to the dream machine to go into limbo, right? So it, it's, it is a shared consciousness thing that they they're able to find Fisher down there, right? Mm-hmm. I think so. And because Saito has died from level one, he's fallen down there as well. What I do quite like that Leo, uh, sorry, Cobb washes up on the shore again because we've established that when he goes down with Marl and they're, they're in an uncharted dream space that, that when we washed up on the shore of our consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like Ken Watanabe's performance in this because he's, he's quite wistful and he delivers some lines quite nicely. You know, when he's dying, he says, no room for tourists. And he has a little yeah. smile on his face because I think he's quite enamored by the whole process of this. Um, it's very clever. But it, it, that is it, isn't it? It's just a shared consciousness that the site has probably built it because he's been there so long he needs to hang on to reality before his brain turns to scrambled eggs. Well, it's the, it's the bit where it's the Dark Knight Rises bit with Nolan and, and it, I'm kind of semi eating into my summary a touch, but he's obviously seen as a, a very serious filmmaker. So all his films are treated as such. And the, the, the unconstructed dream space limbo stuff is where it starts to get a little bit hokey and a little bit silly. But I think they just about get away with it because like you just say, and then it's because of this, it's because of that. It's, I'm sure in Nolan's mind, it's very clear, but even on my third watch for this podcast, I was still sort of like, I think I'm just going to have to go with this and, and understand that the, the consequence of, of being trapped down there is that you'll be what, like, uh, like in total recall, just, you know, lobotomized, I guess. So Sorry, that's, that's, yeah, that's the yeah, that's the that's what they're kind of driving at. But it, it, yeah, it feels like a device that doesn't quite. It's because it comes in so late as well. When when Cobb says, "Oh, if we die now, we go into limbo," mm-hmm. it's like, "What? I thought we just wake up." And it's like, "Ah, oh, okay." It's, 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 it's a raising of the stakes, and you know, I guess that that's that's one thing that um, sometimes with the with the film song kind of. On, on rewatch kind of got to me, which is like you say, they spend so long, uh, establishing rules and then they establish more rules on top of the rules part of the well, way through also, to change the rules. Why would they tell the team that that's the consequence yeah. when they're planning it, you know? Yeah, exactly. Like, um, I mean, I guess, you know, the, the heist movie thing of, uh, uh, there's always a bit of a kind of switcheroo where the, the guy, it's like the bit in Ocean's Eleven where, where, you know, Danny doesn't tell them that the reason they're breaking into this casino is because it's um, Julia Roberts's new boyfriend's mm-hmm. casino, I guess. You know, you have to have the, uh, the the bit where the team kind of turns on the leader a little. 
Do you think the film could have done with a bit more double? Yeah, well, like if, if somebody within the team was was secretly infiltrating on behalf of someone else, a COBOL engineering. Or something. Yeah, there is a theory that Alan Page's character is doing that, but I I didn't really. I don't really go into that because he makes the phone. No, call yeah. But um, if you anyone's got the DVD or the Blu-ray, there's a little interesting animation on it called um, uh, the COBOL job. Um, and it's it's not like a, an amazing animation. It's very basic. So I think they need to do it quite quickly. But it's a little. If you if you got it, watch it. It's quite cool. Ten minutes long. It's a short film about the failed job where they realise they're in the wrong mind and they need to go into Sato's. And in the dream, Cobol Engineering guys are with them in the dream and make it a lot harder for them to to infiltrate uh, the past the subject. It's quite, it's quite cool. Shall we wrap this up then, guys? So go around the room. So I'll, uh, I'll start with you, Devlin. I, I was pretty intrigued when you picked it because, like I said, I hadn't seen it since the cinema, and I felt like um, uh, uh, I did enjoy it very much when I watched it back in the day. And then uh, I, I wasn't sure whether this was going to be like a, a less extreme version of the Avatar effect, which is a film that sort of dazzles you. The, the, the the first time you watch it and then beyond that you start to pick it apart. It, it hasn't fallen apart like a, like a rewatch of Avatar may well do. But um, I did find myself once again while watching it being quite kind of happy to, to go along with it. But um, uh, I actually watched it over two nights, which was my own fault. I just started watching it too late on the first night. And that break in between watching like the first hour and 20 ish and then coming back to the, the second part on a, on the next night, I think really shows that momentum is so important to this film to kind of pull you through. And if you, when you lose that, that's when you start kind of pulling away at threads. And I, I think, um, I guess, I think like we mentioned before and, and like I was saying about with the matrix, I don't, um, I know that the film is about something, but I just, I, I don't, uh, I don't get a takeaway from it really, which, um, sort of in retrospect marks it down a little. Just in, in my mind, it's, uh, when I watch it, it's quite entertaining and then bits of it drag just a little. And then after the fact, I think maybe, maybe it's just a case of a film that was sort of, that was talked about quite a lot and that it was very state of the art when it came out. And the problem with being very state of the art is that unless there's something else, some other bigger resonance behind it, the art will, will take another quantum leap forward in just a few years. Like we were saying, you know, that the visual of seeing that Paris street roll up and over the top, yeah, it's incredible. And then, I don't know, six, seven, maybe years later, in Doctor Strange, they were literally kaleidoscoping buildings right in front of you. And I remember watching that and thinking it was kind of cool, but not being even massively impressed by that. So it's, it's, uh, things come at you quite quick and things get overlapped quite quickly. And I think it's, it's still a, a well constructed and, and, and decent film, but I guess, yeah, it just sort of left me a bit cold this time. Um, which was a shame. Uh, but, uh, so yeah, that's, that's, I think where I land on it, that, um, it's, it's a, it's a good film that I, I no longer really kind of 
dug sunk my teeth into as I maybe once did. Um, how about you, Matt? Well, I'm still all over the place with this. Uh, I I think it, it was a bridge too far in terms of the density of it all for me. And like, if I wasn't happy being befuddled and then having these crumbs kind of thrown periodically to kind of pick up. And I, the film was kind of ahead of me a bit, I think. Uh, I, I don't like the feeling of being confused and then spoon fed. If I'm confused and then it pays off or, or I don't feel cheated in any way. I, I felt like I was being spoon fed a little bit with some of the, the overt kind of expositional ex, explanations of what was going on. Um, and they repeated that several times. It felt a bit like a board game that was a bit too smart for its own good and you didn't really enjoy it while you were playing it. And like the visuals, I think, are exceptional at times and they don't always tell the story, unfortunately. The, the, the dense dialogue, uh, tells the story. Uh, and another quite damning fault in my eyes was that, uh, I think films on their first viewing should have the maximum impact i don't think you should have to see it two or three or four times in order to get the the depth of what's going on um the films that i revisit are to kind of chase the dragon of that feeling of of what it was like the first time i saw it and loved it um and i think in order to fully invest in inception i had to get the logarithm books out and kind of decipher all of these things before i could declare myself in on an emotional level and I, I do feel for Cobb and like the underlying sadness and the tragedy of his relationship was really moving, particularly on the second viewing. But, uh, I feel like I had to bring a lot to the table in order to, to get that. Uh, it did bring something out of me, which is honestly what good art should do, but I kind of resented it a little for making me work so hard. And I tend to enjoy films that wash over you kind of intellectually and, and speak through the motivations and interactions of characters, uh, you know, and too much hypothesizing can remove a, a, an essential human element that, that's vital to making an engaging and moving film. And, but, but each time you see it, it kind of peels the onion and you get a little bit more from it, but to fall in love with inception, you have to kind of put in the time. It's not a love at first sight movie for, for me at least. And, um, so this it may not be a negative it just depends on the viewer and i think we all we all see different films each time if we watch inception or if we watch robin hood prince of thieves we we all saw different films because based on you know it's informed by our past experiences and what happened to us that day and uh we inform our own kind of experiences of the films that we that we watch and talk about so for a podcast i thought it was really a really interesting choice and i enjoyed attempting to pick it apart um but um what do you think patrick hmm. uh interesting Matt. i'm kind of the opposite of you which is really interesting i i remember seeing it the first time and being quite wowed um and i did think the film had washed over me quite nicely the first time to give it a full cinematic experience because you i big advocate of seeing films on a big screen for the first time that are quite like this as well you know big visuals big storytelling um and it's a film that certainly stayed with me as well i I was quite fascinated with the the construction of it the science behind it and how it i I spoke about it before like almost the science fiction is a side plot to cobb's journey and his grief for his wife and what 
he, his um, guilt and what he caused uh, caused her to do. Um, I think it's I, I think it's brilliantly directed and, and conceived, and I love the physical aspects to it. It, it was interesting to reconsider some of the action, uh, which I quite agree with that the Yusuf's car chase and um, the snow hospital could could do a bit more for me, I think, now that I, on rewatch. But at the time, first time watching it, uh, and it just watching over me with the sound, visuals and everything going, it, it's a long film, but I think the pace is quite pacey uh, and it really ramps up towards the end with, with all the sound and image, which is good. It's good for the film to do that because I think it's unapologetically ramping through uh, the, the story. I, we spoke about Kubrick and Kubrick may not have held, held her hands as much in this, but I quite like being challenged in this film to, to keep up with the exposition with Alan Page helping us through. And I think everything's quite nice explained and understandable. I, I really like this film. Um, and I was glad to rewatch it this week a few times. <laughs> I watched it three times this week. Actually. Oh, um, wow. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. I just kept. Right, even in the background while I was doing things just to dip in and out, which is is not how I recommend you watch this film, but I, I do recommend watching this film for, I think the performances are great. I think Leo is properly brilliant in it, as well as Killian Murphy. Uh, I find I have emotional response and I think it's quite heartbreaking, him and Mull's story in it. I, I'm sort of... Uh stuck between two stools here then so in my opinion i think the the optimal amount of times that you should watch inception is probably probably two times because i think the first time like you said patrick i was fully engaged with it like the process um i was intellectually stimulated i was also just like entertained by the action the music everything all my senses were going off and then the second time i got to fill in some of the blanks with the story and i and i got that emotional heart kind of resonated even even further because i was i was i was sort of at the same pace of the film because i knew the rules um and the reason i don't think it kind of holds up to say any more watches after that is because that first half of the film is so heavy with exposition on the rules that i think it, it might bore you even though there's a couple of scenes that that tell you in action the rules there's a lot of standing around talking setting everything up before you get to the big heist and uh, and I do I do think the film suffers from that. Um, as in, if you were to go back and and as M- Matt very very uh, put it so nicely, you know, chase the chase the dragon. I don't think you'll get it. Um, uh, I think it's got some great moments of spectacle. I think Nolan's exploration of time and manipulation of story is actually perfected in Dunkirk. I think he and it's good to see a, a filmmaker progress and get better at what what they do. And I think that Dunkirk nails that cross-cutting, three lots of um, action going on at the same time, but being dealt out to the audience um, at different moments. I think he nails it. The music, Hans Zimmer, yeah, I think you can enjoy it on its own, which is normally uh, the biggest tick you can give to any piece of score music is if you can enjoy it. Uh, without the visuals, then you know it's working for you. Yeah, I recommend people go and watch it if they haven't seen it in a long time or if they've never seen it. Is It, it is available uh, on streaming services. I believe it's actually still available on Amazon Prime, but it's definitely it's on just Netflix. come up on... 
it's on both. It's yeah. also on Netflix. Yes, it's on both. So um, certainly, people in the UK, you have no excuse but to go and watch it and listen to us and spread the good word, spread the gospel, team. You could also buy the the DVD and Blu-ray. I got the Blu-ray. There's some fascinating stuff about how they did the practical effects and the music, uh, which now leaves us to the dreaded moment. Every three films, I always have this <laughs> horrible feeling. Devlin, it's your choice. So what are we going to watch next on the, th- on the throwback? <laughs> um, uh, well, I didn't realize I, I caused such a tremor of cold fear <laughs> through Don't the room. You'd be worried that I'm going to do something musical again nowadays. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, to be fair, it happens every time it's not my pick now. But yeah, go on. Devlin, what are we watching next? Uh, okay. Um, there's not really any specific reason why I wanted to pick this one. This is just a film that I have liked for a very long time. And I think some of you will have seen it. Uh, if you haven't seen it, you'll have heard me drone on about it probably at some point. Um, uh, I would like us to watch, uh, the, I think it's from 2002-ish, uh, David Gordon Green movie, uh, All the Real Girls. I have seen it. You made me watch it. I so there thought we go. perhaps I had. You made me watch it too on DVD. <laughs> <laughs> and now I'm making you watch it again all these years later. Um, yeah, it's, it's a film that I, that I, I really, really, uh, enjoy a lot, although I haven't seen in several years. And obviously David Gordon Green has gone on to have quite an unexpectedly mm. diverse career. Uh, uh, still obviously yes, very active, very. And, and, and but has a lot of irons in the fire. Whereas, uh, this is uh, early days, this is his second feature film. So um, yeah, just thought that would be an interesting one to, to take a look at. Well, it's a change of pace as well, isn't it? So yeah, no. Oh absolutely. yeah, we're going from the, from the very, very big to the very, very small. So no, I look forward to that then. Um, that's a good change of pace. So we'll uh, we'll say our goodbyes. I have not chosen a line from the film. I've actually decided to show my hand on the outro music. So I will see all of you together in Electric Dreams. It's Gally in Glasgow signing off. Uh, video killed the radio star. It's Devlin in London. Don't think of an elephant. It's Matt in South Korea. <laughs> um, I didn't have one prepared. It's Patrick in London. Bye-bye. Very good. We'll see you guys later. Stay safe, and we'll catch you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast. I own.